let us open our ears, open our minds, our imaginations, and our souls as we listen across time and space and seek to hear this story again for the first Then the daughters of Zephalad came forward. Zephalad was the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machia, son of Masaha, son of Joseph, a member of the Manasite clans. The names of the daughters were Malach, Noah, Hagah, Milkah, and Tizah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar, the priest, the leaders in all of the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from this clan? Because we had no sons? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought the case before God. The Zardas of Zephalad are right in what they are saying. You should not indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their fathers onto them. You should also say to the Israelites, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance onto his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you should give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute in ordinance as God commanded Moses. The wisdom of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is not a story in our usual lectionary cycle. 
So it's probably a new story for most of us in the congregation, unless you have a habit of diving frequently into the book of Numbers. It's a brief but not insignificant anecdote from a larger epic tale. And here's a bit of the context for what's happening when this story takes place. Following a plague, God instructed Moses to do a census of the people of Israel and portion out the land according to the actual numbers in each clan. Now, these five sisters quickly realize a problem. Their father has died, and because he has only daughters, his land will be taken away and his name will end. You see, a clan's name and land were passed down from father to son, and since women could not inherit land, a clan with no sons would simply die out. And so they challenged Moses, which is already unheard of in that time, given that women did not have legal standing in court. They asked for what would have been at the time an unlawful inheritance. This is a big deal because the laws that governed inheritance and succession were given to Moses by God. And so their challenge could have easily been seen as insubordination of the highest order, And the congregation would have had that at the forefront of their minds by the daughter's mention of another man, Korah. You see, Korah, a few chapters earlier in the story, organized a rebellion against Moses and the current power structure, which led to him and his followers being swallowed up by a crack in the earth as a lesson that only certain clans can claim certain leadership positions. So Zelophehad's daughters knew that they were treading on very thin ice, or thin earth, for that matter. And yet they came before the congregation. They engaged in some collective bargaining, and Moses offers the case up for God to decide. And God, it turns out, validates the daughter's claim and hands down a new law, allowing the daughters to inherit in the absence of sons, and ensuring that that Zelophehad's clan name would live on. They successfully renegotiated the contract with God. Now, I'm honestly less interested in Moses' perspective in this story, or even the daughter's perspectives, which would be other sermons entirely, than I am in the perspectives of the rest of the congregation and council that witnessed this exchange. What was going through the congregation's heads witnessing this? Were they moved by the daughter's plea? Were they indifferent? Were they perhaps even put off a little bit? Remembering what happened to Korah, did they see this direct challenge of a law handed down by God as potentially harmful to their community, one that could get their community collectively punished even? I mean, how many of them might have been thinking, gosh, we've just been through a rebellion and then a plague It's over now, so can we please just move on and leave the past in the past? How many of them might have been thinking, no, this isn't the right way to bring a challenge. Women aren't allowed to testify in court. This needs to go through the proper channels. There is a system set up for this. You need to find a man to officially voice your complaint. How many of us have ever found ourselves thinking some form of, well, I don't care if I'm under this vaguely invasive form of surveillance. I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing to hide. Or 
well, if you want your laws to change, you should write to your representative, but smashing windows and blocking highways isn't gonna help. Now you're no better than the people that you are protesting. Challenging injustice is dangerous, physically and socially. Challenging legalized injustice even more so because to do it, we are essentially advocating for breaking the law. And those of us who benefit from those laws or the enforcement of those laws, or even those of us who would just prefer to avoid conflict, don't take too kindly to that. How do we decide when to obey a law and when to challenge it? Many of the large-scale atrocities committed against our fellow human beings have been perfectly legal, after all. So that something is law is not reason enough to support it. I mean, even God changed their mind when faced with the injustice that the women pointed out. And yet, when people break laws to protest injustice, they are frequently met with criticism. Ironically, often from those of us who routinely make arbitrary decisions about lawbreaking in our own lives. I'm not proud to admit it, and to any of our United Parish youth who are about to drive or currently driving, do as I say, not as I do. I often drive over the speed limit on the highway or in my hometown on my way to work in the morning. I'm so familiar with the roads there. Do I really need to go 25 down this rural street where there are hardly any houses? Or on the highway, everyone else is going 80 in a 65. I'm just keeping up with the flow of traffic, right? I'm technically breaking the law for no reason other than my own convenience or absent-mindedness. So who am I to judge people who break the law over matters of justice, over matters of life and death? And furthermore, even when protest is legal, even when it is protected by the law and following the law to the letter, if it's impossible to ignore, if it's inconveniencing the wealthy and powerful or those, who, those whose own power relies on the complacency of the wealthy and powerful, the status quo will do as much as it can to delegitimize the protesters. It's not what you're doing, see. We agree with your goals. It's how you're doing it that makes us not support you. It's how you're fighting for your life that we don't agree with. If you listen to public radio or scroll down to some of the less major headlines lately, you might have heard the phrase striketober bounced around. This is a term making the rounds on both mainstream and social media right now. It's a name given to the recent rise in unions using their legally protected power of strikes to push for humane working conditions and wages. Workers at the Kellogg plant of Cheez-Its, Pringles, Morningstar Farms, Kashi, and Eggo Waffle fame are striking. John Deere workers, whose salaries rose 5% this year compared to the 150% raise that their CEO got, and inflation is 4% this year, are striking. And many other groups, including nurses, teachers, group home workers, are striking or are planning to strike this month, challenging unjust treatment by their employers. Mine workers at Worrier Met Coal in Alabama have been on strike since April, relying on mutual aid to help make ends meet, 
walking the picket line and relying on the solidarity of other union members or allies who refused to cross the picket lines and facing violence from Warrior Met Coal and its supporters. Now, speaking of coal, here's some trivia that I didn't know until recently. I didn't learn until this year that the term redneck originated as a pejorative term used by the white wealthy mine owners to refer to the multi-ethnic, multi-racial group of striking coal miners who wore red bandanas around their necks as physical symbols of both solidarity with one another and identification in the Battle of Blair Mountain. In the Battle of Blair Mountain, if you are also just learning this, like I was a couple weeks ago, was a bloody episode in the coal wars of the early 20th century. It was 100 years ago this past August, when striking workers were shot at, gassed, and even bombed by private planes called in by the ruling elite. Now, if you're interested in this piece of American history or would like to deepen your yolidarity, I urge you to check out the website for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. And for those of you who are joining online, you can do that right now. I give you permission to check it out, pause the worship stream, check it out, and come back into the sermon when you're done. But I have the rest of you hostage here. <laughs> but I digress. The point is that even when the reaction isn't as bloody as the reaction to the strikes during the mine wars, every attempt to challenge an unjust law, every obvious, unignorable attempt, there is a powerful voice attempting to delegitimize the challenger, distracting us from the injustice itself, keeping us focused on process rather than policy. We see this in how much of the editorialized coverage of strikes and unionization efforts attempt to place the blame on the strikers for the actions of the employers. Oh, some good that strike did. Look at all the administrative workers the company had to lay off due to budget cuts that the company chose to impose in order to preserve the CEO's bonus after the boycott cut their revenue. The powerful will always want to preserve its power. The powerful wants you to scoff at how inappropriate it was for women to stand up in court and petition Moses for a law to be changed. The powerful wants you to ignore your inheritance as children of a living God, an inheritance of courage, perseverance, and righteousness. And it wants you to keep your hands clean of the messy business of social change, because messy is often synonymous with effective. We see time and time again just how much unapologetic challenges to unjust laws frighten the forces of empire. The empire is terrified for the injustice to be brought forth, to be brought front and center under the scrutiny of the children of God because the empire knows that God always sides with justice. Always. And the empire knows that if we listen to God, we will side with justice too. The song Solidarity Forever, written in 1915, acknowledges the truth about the power that people united in the struggle for justice can wield. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Zalafahad's daughters stood together in solidarity. 
They stood where they had no business standing, asking for something they had no business asking for because the law was pretty clear. And yet they knew that the law was unjust. And they knew that God cares about justice, about the marginalized and the vulnerable, about community wholeness. And because of their courage and their collective bargaining, the law changed. And that is our inheritance. That is our example. They are our foreparents, and their legacy lives on in us. Children of God, in our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of armies multiplied a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for our union makes us strong. Amen. Circle round for freedom, circle round for peace, for all